0: If I were to say to you, we live in interesting times, you would say, well, that's an understatement, Larry. Uh, Confusing times, troublesome times, and for some folks, perhaps scary times. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, in the hearts of many people. There's little hope for the future. Here in rural Montana, our day-to-day lives tend to roll along routinely. The electricity's on, the gas stations are open for business, the grocery store shelves are stocked, the electronic digital world is functioning so far so that we can maintain contact with whomever or whatever we want to stay connected to. The highways are open to travel, but unless you live in a cave somewhere, or have chosen to isolate yourself from the outside world, uh, you know there are lots of uncertainties and lots of troubles on planet Earth. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then this world has become a lot less friendly to what you and I believe, and a lot more hostile to the God of heaven. We have for nearly a hundred years sung the old gospel song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. But now I think we're starting to get it. Life was pretty comfortable in North America for the Lord's people for a long, long time, many generations, and we generally felt quite at home. But as opposition to Bible truth increases in government and education and in the norms of society, that old song becomes more meaningful. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is all-knowing and all-powerful and present everywhere, and is the sovereign ruler of His universe, and even in circumstances where it appears that God's people are losing, we can still trust Him completely. On the day Jesus was crucified, the world looked very dark to His followers. But the resurrection day was just around the corner. And we must remind ourselves, always remind ourselves, of the encouraging words of our Savior that he gave to his disciples the night before the crucifixion. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So how can we, as followers of Jesus, maintain courage and strength and hope as our culture drifts further and further from the God of heaven? Well, the life and testimony of Daniel, I believe, will answer that question for us. Over the years, I have referred to and preached from a number of different passages in the book of Daniel, but we're going to start a brand new adventure today, and I'm going to preach through the entire book. Not today, of course, the entire book, but I'm going to preach through the entire book, okay, from from the first verses of Daniel all the way to the end of chapter 12. Twelve chapters, will be in it for many months. Uh, the, The Bible is always relevant because God's truth is always relevant, but I believe the book of Daniel will be especially encouraging to us in the months ahead. The life and testimony of Daniel illustrate for us courage in the face of adversity and strength and hope in God when we're surrounded by a godless culture. But I always want to be reminded that ultimately God is the hero of the book of Daniel. We would not have the book of Daniel if if there were not a Daniel to write it, but we would not have a Daniel if God had not strengthened and empowered and preserved him. Sometimes, you know, God steps in and intervenes in the affairs of this world in a miraculous godlike way, but you know, usually, most of the time, God uses His people to accomplish His purposes. That is one of the amazing principles regarding the will of God on this earth. God selects a person born with a sin nature, filled with flaws and weaknesses. He redeems that person. He prepares that person. He providentially puts that person exactly where he wants them to be at exactly the right time. Then he empowers that person and enables that person to do what he wants them to do, to represent God and God's truth and God's will and God's power in a very dark and twisted world. And the will of God is then accomplished through the obedience and the service of God's people. It is an amazing thing to read about in the Bible, and it's an amazing thing to observe in our world today as well. So Daniel is one of my heroes, and there would be no book of Daniel, obviously, without Daniel. But we wouldn't have a Daniel if God had not selected and redeemed and prepared and strengthened and empowered and preserved him. And in Daniel's life, and in our lives, the God of heaven, the Ancient of Days, as Daniel calls him, is the ultimate hero. And as we introduce our thoughts for today from Daniel chapter 1... We need to see a little bit of historical background as to what's going on, because when you understand why Daniel wound up where Daniel was, then you really have some tremendous understanding of what's going on in the book of Daniel. So if you would, turn, if you would, to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 25, and then we'll take a look at Daniel chapter 1 in just a moment. But we're going to begin today in, in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 25. Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries, meaning they, their lives overlapped. Jeremiah was significantly older than Daniel. It would be like if I were Jeremiah and Cole and Logan were Daniel. That would be about the age span there. Jeremiah was an older guy. Daniel was a young fellow, but, but their lives overlapped. I am sure that Daniel knew who Jeremiah was. Daniel probably grew up hearing Jeremiah preach. As Jeremiah, the prophet of God. So, and in fact, there's a passage in the book of Daniel, which we'll see in coming weeks, where you see that Daniel was actually reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. And he actually read this passage that we're going to talk about today. And uh, you'll see in the book of Daniel toward the end, Daniel is reading one day, and he's reading Jeremiah, and he comes to this passage that we're going to take a look at. So, to Jeremiah 25, <coughs> excuse me, and we're going to begin to read in. Verse one. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day... This is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land which the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, it is the millstone's grinding grain, and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will come to pass when seventy years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations, for many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. And I will repay them, meaning the Babylonians, according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. If I were to say to you, God judges sin, you'd probably respond, well, duh. I mean, yeah, anybody who reads the Bible knows that. Yeah, God judges sin. I mean, you start in the book of Genesis, and by the time you get to chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and, and there's consequences for it. You know, God, God judges sin. It's all over the Bible. God's laws reveal God's will. And sin is a rebellion against the law of God and therefore the will of God. God always deals with sin. He can't ignore it. That was the very reason that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son, came to this earth to die on the cross. God had to deal with sin. God is pure. God is holy. Sin has to be dealt with. God's holiness and God's justice demand that He deal with sin. And Christ bore the judgment for our sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven. God judged our personal sin in Christ at the cross. That wonderful verse we quote many times from Second Corinthians 5. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. That is, God the Father put all of our sin on God the Son, even though he had none of his own sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. God judged our personal sin in Christ at the cross. But do you also realize that God judges national sin? He judges the sins of nations. This is taught in many places in the scripture. We see it very clearly here in Jeremiah 25. God sometimes uses natural disasters. Floods and hailstorms and tornadoes and hurricanes and drought and famine and various kinds of disease pandemics. Now that's not to say that every time there's a natural disaster, that's the judgment of God. We know that in the Old Testament, sometimes God used natural disasters as judgment because he said he was going to do that. You remember the great passage people quote, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, and I'll hear from heaven and heal their land. If, well, if you back up one verse, you see God talking about locusts and drought and hail and, and all these things that were coming in natural disasters because of Israel's sin. And so we also see God withheld rain from Israel at the word of the prophet Elijah in King Ahab's day because of Israel's sin. But God has not specifically told us today if a certain natural disaster is his judgment or if it's just the natural consequence of a sin-cursed earth. We have a hurricane season every year. We have rumbling earthquakes around the world as the tectonic plates of the earth's crust shift throughout the year. Most of them we never feel, but a few of them are big, destructive ones. Just had one in Haiti the other day, if you were keeping up with that on the news. uh, uh, I think it was a a seven-something on the Richter scale, a massive, massive uh, uh, earthquake there just in Haiti. And those will continue. The, The scripture tells us in Psalm 102 that the earth is wearing out like a piece of cloth. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 51. The world or the earth is wearing out like a piece of cloth. One day God's going to change it. So, so as things wear out, things happen. Just like our bodies. As things wear out, things happen. So, so we, we cannot say with certainty what God's purposes are in natural disasters other than to remind us of who is in control and to urge us toward repentance and submission to God. We know that the creator and sustainer of his universe, uh, as the creator and sustainer of his universe, God oversees the weather phenomenon that we experience, but God is not revealing to us today what his precise purposes are in natural disasters. We simply know that in biblical history, sometimes God used natural disasters to judge national sin. We also see from this passage and a number of others, and we see in biblical history, that quite often God uses war as a judgment for national sin. And he says that's what he's going to do in this passage. Jeremiah plainly says that he has been preaching and calling Judah to repent for 23 years, and they have not paid any attention. He says the Lord sent other prophets to you, and you didn't listen to them either. So God says, okay, I'm going to send you somebody else now. I'm going to send you the Babylonians to destroy the land. And, they, and, and you are going to be servants of the Babylonians for 70 years. Then he said, I'm going to judge the Babylonians. And I'm going to repay them according to their deeds. And they're going to be destroyed in war. And they're going to serve other nations because of their wickedness. You may remember me mentioning several weeks ago that our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, believed that the civil war was God's judgment on America because of 250 years of slavery. He plainly said so in his second inaugural address. You can read it. March 4, 1865, just 41 days before he was assassinated. Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, said he was convinced that the Civil War was the judgment of God on America because of 250 years of slavery. And while he pleaded with God for the war to end, he expected that the war would not end until God completed his judgment. Very fascinating speech. You should read it sometime. And then he quoted as he wound up Psalm 19, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Will God judge America again? At some point, I am sure he will. Perhaps he's already beginning to. We have taken, as a nation, we have taken ten times as many lives in the abortion clinics of America in the last 40 years as Hitler took in the Holocaust gas chambers of Europe in World War II. Not to mention other national sins, but that's another sermon for another day. But be assured that God judges sin, both personal sin and national sin. And our only escape is repentance, both personal and national. And I don't currently see any national repentance on the horizon. But don't miss God's statement about Nebuchadnezzar in verse 9. Look at this. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Isn't that astounding? Ungodly, wicked man like Nebuchadnezzar. He is doing the will of God. Nebuchadnezzar, God says, is my servant, and he is going to make Judah and the surrounding nations a desolation. And later on, he said, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get judged for his arrogance and his wickedness. We'll see that in the book of Daniel as well. And interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar gets judged after Daniel challenges him to repent, and he doesn't do it. So even the ungodly rulers of this world are being used in the hand of God to accomplish His purposes for the nations. Every single person currently in political office in our country today is there because God allowed it to happen. In some cases, perhaps caused it to happen. Why? We don't know all the purposes of God. But if God says to Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant... Who, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he has no regard for God whatsoever. Basically, God's saying, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do my will. Solomon understood this. Proverbs 21.1, he said, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. That was true even for Nebuchadnezzar, God's servant. Even though he didn't know he was God's servant. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, Solomon says. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So having had that little short background, let's look now at the first couple of verses in the book of Daniel. And we'll wind up our thoughts here in just a couple minutes. It's probably an understatement. Not really a couple minutes, but a few minutes. Okay. Daniel, we're going to just look at the first two verses. We'll see as we study through this book... That when national trouble comes, those who are loyal to God do not go untouched. When national trouble comes, those who are loyal to God do not go untouched. And if I were going to title our thoughts here as we come to the end, I'm I'm just going to call it this. Those who know their God. And we'll see a verse that has that phrase in it in just a minute. Let's read the first two verses, Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God." Some of you sharp and observant Bible students may have noticed that when we read Jeremiah 25, it says in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and Daniel writes here in the third year of Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. The Hebrew method of dating the reign of kings counted the year that they became king as their first year of ruling. The Babylonian method of dating the reign of kings counted their first full year after their coronation as the first year of reigning rather than the year that they ascended the throne. So Jehoiakim's fourth year in Hebrew reckoning in Jeremiah 25 was the third year in Babylonian reckoning in Daniel chapter 1. It's the same year. Daniel is writing from the Babylonian perspective using their dating method, no discrepancy there, it's the same year. So the very year, the interesting thing is the very year that Jeremiah spoke about the coming 70 year captivity, it happened. Those words that we read in Jeremiah 25, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the land just not, I don't know how long after, but the very same year that Jeremiah said that, Nebuchadnezzar shows up. If you are a student of ancient history, you may have heard of the great Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. The Egyptians, who dominated much of the Middle East at that time, were allies of the Assyrians, who controlled much of what we would call today Iran, Iraq, Syria, and the eastern part of Turkey. The Babylonians were rising in power, with Nebuchadnezzar's father and Nebuchadnezzar leading the army, The Egyptians and the Babylonians met at Carchemish, an area which is now in what we would call eastern Turkey. And they were going to battle it out for domination of the Middle East. The Babylonians thoroughly routed the Egyptians, totally destroying their army and in the process annihilating the Assyrian Empire. And soon after that great battle, Nebuchadnezzar's father died. And after he returned to Babylon to bury him, he became king. And he turned his attention to take control of everything that Egypt had dominated. Thus we come to verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar shows up. The Battle of Carchemish had just happened. Nebuchadnezzar had just become king. He had just virtually wiped out the army of the Egyptians. And now Nebuchadnezzar is the top dog in the Middle East. And he's marching down through what we would call Palestine today, taking nation after nation after nation after nation. And he shows up, in, in according to Babylonian reckoning, in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. It's the first year that Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And he comes to Jerusalem and he besieged it, meaning he surrounded it. And he didn't let anybody in and he didn't let anybody out. And he blocks off the water supplies and he blocks off the food supplies and he besieged it. And then notice that phrase in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The only reason Nebuchadnezzar won the battle is because God gave it to him little tiny judah had been attacked and surrounded many times before if you read old testament history and god had delivered them time after time after time they'd been surrounded by hundreds of thousands of of of, of armies even of the assyrians and 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 god god had done miraculous things and had saved them every single time but not this time it was for now it was time for national judgment and the lord gave jehoiakim into nebuchadnezzar's hand this is one of the greatest crises in the history of the nation of israel nebuchadnezzar took the items in the temple solomon's temple that solomon had built 350 years earlier he took them to babylon he put them in the temple to his god this was a sign of spiritual victory i take your items of worship and i give them to my god my god's better than your god My God's bigger than your God. My God's more powerful than your God. I win, you lose. My God gave me the victory. Your God is a loser. And you and I can only begin to imagine the horror of this event in the minds of the Hebrew people of Daniel's day, and to Daniel personally, who was probably in his mid-teenage years, the words that describe him later on in this chapter, he was 14, 15, 16, 17. He was somewhere in those middle teenage years. Daniel's was a kid. Nebuchadnezzar comes and surrounds him. He tears everything up. He hauls a bunch of people away captive, including Daniel and a bunch of other people. Hundreds and hundreds of other people. He goes into the temple of Solomon erects wrecks a bunch of stuff, takes all the gold and the silver and the cups and everything else and marches it back to Babylon and he sticks it in the, in the temple to his God and says, ha, 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 God's nothing, is he? And after hundreds of years of the deliverance of God on Israel, now he lets them be wiped out. Solomon's glorious temples destroyed, the best and brightest of the land carried away as captives, Jewish society was destroyed, family structure destroyed, the economy destroyed. Everything you have ever known has been annihilated. Everything Daniel has ever known is gone. His opportunity to worship in the temple is gone. No family structure for support. He's placed in a totally foreign environment, having witnessed the horrors of war and being marched 500 miles across the desert to become the servant of a wicked, ruthless king. We talk about trauma and traumatic stress David lived it yet we're going to see in coming weeks that Daniel's life demonstrated two dynamic life truths that I want you to make sure you understand about the life of Daniel his life demonstrates two dynamic life truths the first one is this changing your environment does not change your heart and secondly times of testing reveal what we really are First of all, changing your environment does not change your heart. A person may say, you know, if I could just move, I could get away from my problems. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. If I could just change jobs, I wouldn't have to deal with all this nonsense. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cuss so much if I had a different boss. I could, if I could just, I've heard people say this, if I could just change husbands, if I could just change wives, I wouldn't be so angry all the time. Now, I understand that the change of environment may be beneficial to some people in some situations. But you know what? There's one thing about my environment that will never change. Me. No matter where I go, I am still there. (laughs) And until I address the issues of the heart, until I address the issues of my heart, then a change of environment will not resolve anything. Because I carry the issues of my heart everywhere I go. Everything about Daniel's environment was drastically, traumatically, horrifyingly, involuntarily changed. Daniel didn't ask for this. He had nothing to do with it. Everything about Daniel's environment was drastically, traumatically, horrifyingly, involuntarily changed. But you know what? Daniel's heart for God Remained untouched, unblemished, undamaged. Tested, yes, but destroyed, no. Then, the second great truth about Daniel times of testing simply reveal what's going on in the inner man. You've heard the illustration you bump a glass, and whatever's in it spills out. Very true. Jesus said in Luke 12, we read it last week, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in that marvelous passage in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul writing about ministry, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And a few years later, a few years, a few verses later, he writes, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. You see, changing your environment doesn't change your heart, just reveals what's there. Times of testing reveal what we really are on the inside. And let me close by sharing with you one verse from Daniel chapter 11. It's right in the middle of a prophetic passage. We mentioned this uh, last week, I think, a couple of times, or in our, in our Bible study, possibly. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to deal with this, of course, in detail uh, many, many weeks down the road. Uh, but right in the middle of this prophetic passage in Daniel 11, there, there's one phrase that I hope you will mark and remember. It's the way I titled our thoughts today, those who know their God. It's verse 32. He says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. And we'll talk about what all that means when we get to it on down the road. But notice the second half of verse 32. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. I came across this verse a number of years ago and what a tremendous blessing it was to me. Those who know their God... The people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. I ask you at the beginning of the message, so how can we as followers of Jesus maintain courage and strength and hope as our culture drifts further and further away from the God of heaven? Daniel 11.32, that second half of the verse, is a significant part of our answer. Those who know their God will be strong and strong and carry out great exploits. As the time of Christ's return draws near and opposition to the cause of Christ increases, will we maintain courage and strength and hope in God? We can if we know God. Not just know Him as our Savior, We certainly should do that. That's the first step, knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. But then knowing God, understanding God, seeing what He's doing, knowing His Word, knowing the heart of God, understanding the will of God. Those who know their God, Daniel says, in times of trouble, in Daniel chapter 11, is a terrible time of horrendous prophetic things taking place. He says, those who know their God will be strong. And carry out great exploits. They will do great things for Him. How well do you know God? Let's pray. Lord, I just ask you to help us and strengthen us. We don't know what's coming down the road. Specifically, we see great trends. We see more opposition to the people of God and the will of God and the Word of God. We see, uh, we see more censorship of, of, of godly truth taking place. We see more attacks against, uh, against our churches. And it, it certainly in some metropolitan areas, churches have been destroyed. We know there are powers within our own government who are seeking to do everything they can to diminish the impact of churches all across our land. And although we don't know what all the details are going to be, we certainly know, Lord, that you are in control. Just as you were in the day when Nebuchadnezzar swept through the land of Judea and made it into a desolation. And you marched Daniel off and a bunch of his friends to a foreign land and a foreign place. Everything they'd ever known ripped out from underneath them when they were just young teenagers. Yet Lord you didn't change his heart. All of that all of that trauma did not change Daniel's heart for God. And I pray Lord that as we look ahead to the future that we will not be filled with fear. That we will be filled with faith. Help us we pray in Jesus name. Amen.